This is Metal Mike, and I'm joined again by my pal, Mr. A-Fish, and we are going to talk six 80s heavy metal bands that should have been huge. The bands discussed are Badlands, Lillian Axe, Keel, Hurricane, TNT, and Black and Blue. Was it their labels? Was it timing? Bad management? No power ballad? We discuss it all. I've even thrown in some clips of the bands themselves with their opinions from past interviews I've done. You gotta check this out. Well, A-Fish, man. Welcome back to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How are you tonight? Hey, man. Doing well, doing well. Glad you had a um, good vacation. Uh, living off the profits of the 1984 podcast. <laughs> you know, man, the view count keeps going up. So people liked it. And, you know, I thought it'd be a great time to do another one. And what we're going to talk about tonight is... Uh, some of our faves that never made it big. You know, I think all of us, uh, as we first got into this scene, you know, maybe we had discovered Rat, Motley Crue, uh, then Poison came along, Cinderella. And then once you got so into this scene, you started digging deeper and you'd watch Headbangers Ball and then you'd find out about bands like uh, Keel and Lillian Axe and Vane, Shotgun Messiah. There was so much to take in, man. And I think when we were younger, it was kind of hard to figure out why did some of these bands we love so much, why didn't they make it? And I think now it'll be interesting to talk about, you know, why we think it didn't happen. We can look at it from a different point of view, you know, as an adult, kind of seeing, you know, different things that have happened from the 80s to today. So it's going to be an interesting conversation, man. Yeah, we've all got our um, bands that did not make it for one reason or the other. Sometimes <laughs> the band's fault, sometimes it's not. But we've all got our opinions at the uh, strong opinions at times as to who did not make it and why. We even mentioned that in the beginning of the 1984 pod where we said, man, there's a lot of these bands out there that just did not make it, you know? Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, what we're going to do is uh, we've each picked three, so there'll be six in total. Um, kick us off, man. Well, who's the first band you want to talk about that, that you thought should have been way bigger than they were? My dead ringer is going to be black and blue. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. I mean, this is one of the bands that I think did everything they're supposed to on every single album. And they were out during the formation of, of, of the glam, the feel-good 80s, right in the middle of it. And it just did not break. It was not a lack of talent. It was not, it was not the songs. <laughs> It just didn't happen. Um, what a lot of people don't know, you remember the Metal Massacre that came out, had the first Metallica song on it? Mm-hmm. Rat, yep. Steeler. Yes. Um, they did a second pressing of that album, and Black and Blue was on that album, Chains Around Heaven. That song, of course, is a little different than the Metallica song at the time, but for all intents and purposes, they were on the Metal Massacre first CD, and you would think that would give them some kind of boost because a lot of those bands, like just mentioned, Metallica and Rat, went on to huge, huge careers. Yes. And some, like Steeler, did not. And we'll get into a Steeler reference here later, but oh, yeah. <laughs> um, in my opinion, um, as I understand it, uh, early 80s, but they moved to LA and got um, Dieter Dirks I believe he did a lot of work with the Scorpions yep. if I recall right but he produced their first album self-titled album it came out in August of 84 
and you, in 84, I mean, that is a huge year for this glam era. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Um, you know, the chains around Heaven Song from the Metal Massacre was on that. Hold On to 18, which is one of their classic songs. School of Hard Knocks is one of their classic songs. Did not really make a dent. They came right back in August of 85 with a more poppier version. Of course, it was produced by Bruce Fairburn. Mm. And he is, of course, the slick, he is the polished master. But they had a song called Miss Mystery that was on video. I remember seeing the video on MTV. Did a song called Rockin' on Heaven's Door, an Aerosmith cover. I mean, so they went a little heavier, then they went lighter. They did a cover of a classic band, same old song and dance. Um, more polished, like I said. Went out with Kiss on their asylum tour. I mean, <laughs> you would think that would be getting, um, that would be getting somewhere at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. They came back, um, like I said, the first album was August 84. They came back in August 85. August 86, they came back with Nasty Nasty, which I thought was great. Um, I would have released Nasty Nasty as the first single. Of course, Gene's involved at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, after they went on tour, uh, that asylum tour, Gene's involved with uh, helping write some songs. 12 O'Clock High and Nasty Nasty are just rockers. They are great songs. I Want It All, I Want It Now is a great song. People are asking for ballads. They pinned a Jonathan Kane of Journey number, I'll Be There For You. Hmm. Um, and that was a video I remember seeing. And again, it just did not hit. I don't know why. Nasty Nasty was a fabulous album. Probably my favorite overall from them. It came back in, I believe it was summer of 88. Gene Simmons produced. And he, of course, he got songwriting credits and, you know, Gene's involved, and that could be good or it could be bad, depending on the <laughs> section. But he's, uh, he's very involved in Black and Blue at this point and has been for three years now. Live It Up is a great song. Rock On is a great song. Heat It Up, Burn It Out would have been my first single if I would have had a choice. It seems like to me, in 88, if you could have been hooked up with the Poison Open Up and Say I Tour or Long Cold Winter from Cinderella, I mean, something that simple, I think, would have broke these guys. Yeah. Um, because the songs are there, the talent's there. I mean, you got to remember, 88, in our point of view, is one of the greatest years in Oh, my God, history. yeah. Oh, yeah. L.A. Guns' debut was out there. He had Lita Ford coming back around. Cinderella, Poison, Queensryche, Ricky Fox, Winger, Bullet Boys, Rap was still around. Uh, you know, it seemed like that was a prime time and most of those bands made it to a certain degree even mm-hmm. Bullet Boys yeah Britney yep. Fox had, yep. had gold albums and it just did not happen for Black and Blue and I am still it blows me away to this day it's been so many years but for such for so many bands to hit in 88 someone as good as Black and Blue that did not I just don't get it yeah, you know, and, and what my only thoughts on it is that I never really got into Black and Blue, and it wasn't because I didn't think they were talented, it's because they just really weren't out there. I mean, I started getting big into metal around 86, I think that was the year Nasty Nasty came out, and uh, yep. I'll be honest, I was avid Headbangers Ball Watcher. I don't remember 
ever seeing any of their videos. Uh, I'm sure they had video, a couple videos, and they were played. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. And you know, okay, first of all, you touch on a really key thing. It was produced. Couple albums were produced by Gene Simmons. Uh, Gene Simmons is like, <laughs> I don't know, man. But I'm a, I don't want to diss the guy as a producer because he's a great. He's great. I love Gene Simmons. But no, no band that he's ever produced ever has made it big. Nobody. Uh, no. So, so you wonder, like, I don't know. You know, is it a curse to be produced by Gene? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no way, no band. It, it, it's going to come up again here in, in a second. But um, oh yeah, you know, I went back and I, I listened to some tracks before this, and I. I agree with you. Songs like I Want It All and I Want It Now and Miss Mystery, super cool songs. And I knew Hold On to 18. I mean, that's kind of kicking around because, you know, that that's one of their biggest songs. But those other two, two I mentioned, this is the only – this is somebody who doesn't really – never got into them in the 80s and is looking at it now. When I listen to those couple songs like I Want It All and Miss Mystery, they – okay, they don't have a real edge to them. They're good you know, like pop metal songs, but I don't get an edge. And when I look at the band – I almost get like a rat type of a vibe, but I don't get that edge out of some of those singles. So I don't know. Maybe they confused people. Maybe people didn't you know how to take them. I really don't know. That's my only thing. Oh, and there's one guy that had bad hair in the band. You know what guy I'm talking about? He just didn't have good hair. Yeah, th- maybe that's why they did. Maybe that's why they didn't make it. No, I'm just kidding. But anyways, um, I don't know, man. I just you know I, I think they're talented. Good band. I just don't think they were promoted right. Like I said, they they really they weren't out there heavy like some of the other guys that you mentioned in '88. So I just I think it sounds it's a couple things, but maybe just bad promotion, not enough promotion. Yeah, let's take let's take in in '86, which is a formative year. They came out with that Jonathan Kane song. I'll be there for you with keyboards, and that's what he does. I mean, that's who he is. It's one of his songs, I guess, that Journey did not record. But there's no way with the um, atmosphere as to what was going on in 86 um, out on the west coast especially and they were in the heart of it you don't release 12 o'clock high or nasty nasty as your first single both of those songs just kick ass and it's just amazing to me how they went back to back albums uh, Miss Mystery and I'll Be There For You is really the lead singles and you only get one chance to make a first impression you yep. may be onto something there but I, they had better songs than than what uh, than what the record company um, put out for. Yeah, you know, and, and it, it's tough, man. It, it, I think sometimes it's just it just do, people just don't connect with it you know what i mean it's like we could sit here and try to analyze it you know why did poison get so big why did motley crew get so big and why did black and blue not you know what i mean it's just there was there's something magical sometimes in some of these bands that people connect to and maybe just black and blue didn't have it i don't know uh, well it's a mystery to me that's my that's my first one i mean he's from in my opinion they did everything right from when they were first discovered where they went the uh, the initial couple first singles you had big name producers you toured with kids you put out a couple of slower non more popular songs and it just nothing hit no wow. album hit no album went gold no nothing it's just just incredible to me well, my first one up here, man, is going to be another Gene Simmons produced band. At least a couple of their albums were produced by Gene, and it's Keel. Um, and you know, Keel was a band that, like, I always loved. I never understood why they didn't have big hits. And you know, Keel would be a band you'd tell people about that you knew from school, and they'd be like, "Who? 
Keel, what's that? You know what I mean? So, uh, so yeah. you know, Keel's a head scratcher in a lot of ways. You know, I don't know if you, you know the song, um, I said the wrong thing to the right girl. I almost think that when Keel came out, they were had the wrong sound at the right time. And if you think about when they, when they came, especially, okay, so I know they did an album in 84, but that was on Shrapnel or something. It was, it was not a big release. The major label yeah. debut is right yeah, to, the yeah, yeah, right to rock is their real major label debut. And if yeah, you look at, if you listen to that song and you look at how they look and how they act and everything, they're kind of putting off to me when I went back and I watched it. It's kind of like the Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, Dio thing. And in 1985, that was kind of getting pushed to the side and, and guys were getting more girly. You know, like the, the, the Theater of Pain was out, you know, Dock It, In My Dreams. Yeah, you know what I mean? So it's almost like Keel was a little behind the times of what was actually really hot. You know, and it's, it's hard to anticipate what's going to happen because it was all changing like wicked fast, right? In 84, you had Twisted Sister and Rat. And then in 85, you got Motley Crue's really popping and Dock It and all. You know what I mean? So it's, it's really tough to gauge what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, so I think that was the first thing why I think maybe the right to rock didn't really explode because, you know, I, I just don't think it, it, it seems a little bit like it's a, a couple years behind schedule. And even the video is, is real cheesy, you know, <laughs> and it reminds me of breaking the law. You know, it just reminds me of some like old English, British, you know, metal video. I don't know something about it. Just, it just seems like kind of like the time has passed. An old, an old pre. Old Creek video or yeah. something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Um, I think they would have been better off. I'm not saying – Right to Rock's a great tune. It probably was a good lead-off single, but you probably should have followed up with some videos for stuff like maybe Easier Said Than Done or Let's Spend the Night Together. Maybe something a little bit more poppy. Now, in 86, so Keel comes back again with The Final Frontier, and now at this point they are kind of lightening up the sound, at least for the singles. They got Because of the Night and they got Tears of Fire. Yep. But this isn't really hitting either. You know, this album didn't do anything. Once again, produced by Gene Simmons. Uh-oh, that's, that's, we got a problem here. You know, okay, so there's a couple things when I go back. And I'm not trying to tear apart Keel because I love Keel. But I was trying to think, like, what are some things that maybe could have held them back? Like, does the name hold them back? I know, like, Winger is a stupid name, but Winger was huge. Like, Keel, like, maybe yeah. the b- band should have just been called something else. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. Does Keel resonate with people i don't know you know what do you think yeah it's not for it's not for a lack of trying right you there yeah and then okay so if you yeah, look at i went back to like the look okay and and unfortunately keel's heading into the pretty boy era you know as, as we're as a lady as, as the 80s are progressing we got vince neal and uh, brett michaels and sebastian bach and janie lane and Nothing against Ron Keel, but like I said, he he just he. I always feel like I'm looking at him screaming and and metal posing. It, he just reminds me of like like a D. Snyder, uh, Kevin DeBro. You know what I mean? He is that dude. There is no makeup that can cover up Ron Keel. That's who he is. Yeah, he, right. He is a man. He's a dude. Yeah, no he, doubt. he's not like said, a pretty boy. Not for lack of trying. I mean, they released albums '84, '85, '86, and '87. Yep. And you know, like I said, we can always now. They were on a shit label. And and funny enough, I, I forgot to mention this at the beginning. Most of the people we're going to talk about tonight, I've actually talked to in interviews. And I'll integrate some clips here and there um, during the podcast because I've asked some of these questions of why they thought that it didn't work out. And I know 
Ron didn't want to talk about it a ton, but Mark Ferrari goes into some detail of what he thought went wrong um, with MCA Records. A lot of people had problems with MCA Records, and probably right now is a good time to throw in what uh, Mark Ferrari said. Well, again, we thought we had made a pretty solid record. You know, it was pretty slick with uh, Michael Wagner producing it. It was one of the first albums that was recorded digitally uh, back in 1987. Um, And, you know, I thought we had some some really radio-friendly songs uh, on there, especially the the two Jack Pawnee songs, which were partly responsible for us getting the, the Bon Jovi tour. Um, and I thought, you know, we, it was our fourth album, by the way, the first one being an independent album called uh, Lay Down the Law. So, you know, by album four, I thought we were, you know, kind of firing on all six, you know, we kind of, kind of had it down. Um, all I can tell you is that success in the music industry or like making a record is kind of like running a relay race, Mike. It's like the band takes the first lap around the track and passes the baton on, you know, they pass the baton on to the A&R, uh, to the uh, marketing guys or the radio guys or the promotion guys or the publicity guys, and they have to take their lap around the track too. And sometimes the baton gets dropped, and that's the best, that's the best analogy that I can use, is that in our case, the baton got dropped, and uh, I, I thought we, we did take our lap around the track and uh, made a real solid record. I'm still proud of it. Uh, obviously, it resonates with a lot of people like yourself. Now, the biggest head scratcher for me is the 1987 album. Before, like, to, for me, this is when everything was happening right, and this is when the band should have broke. So they toured with Bon Jovi on this album. They toured with Motley Crue, and we've got some big ass songs, big ass choruses on this album. You know, United Nations, Cherry Lane. Tonight, I said the wrong thing to the right girl. Power Ballad, Calm Before the Storm. Now, Somebody's Waiting is a great song. That was the first single, but we didn't get any more singles after that. And you're going to find as we talk through, uh, there's another band that's going to come up that was on MCA Records. A lot of times, MCA gave you one at bat, you know? And if you didn't hit it out of the park, it seemed like that was it. You know, they weren't going to put any more money into it. And that was it, man. So so those are some of the things I think that might have went wrong with Keel. I still think Keel should have popped uh, in 87. That was the right album. And I think at that point, I would point the finger to MCA. There should have been three or four singles off the 1987 self-titled album. And I think maybe that could have helped. I don't know, man. Like I said, we talked before. A lot of ch- – like with Black and Blue. Keel had chances, man. They were on big tours. They had the notoriety of being produced by Gene Simmons. They had a lot going on, but for some reason, something about it just didn't connect uh, with the masses. What do you think? At some point, I remember hearing in the early 90s when they were talking about these type bangers, MCA was uh, nicknamed Musicians Musicians Cemetery of America. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And I, I remember that acronym coming out, and I was like, yeah, the MCA... Um, and I think a lot to do with it had a lot to do with the times. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the people who were breaking at this time. Poison, Cry Tough came out, did not really set the world on fire. Talk oh. Dirty to Me did, and Poison blew up. But they got a second chance. They got another single after Cry Tough didn't really get take the masses like they thought it would. It's just another example of of bands doing things right. Maybe not all the time, but 
during a specific time when mm-hmm. it should have worked. Yep, for sure, man. Well, what do you got for your next group? Next group, another band that did, in my opinion, everything right. I've got one complaint about what they did, but I'm going with Hurricane. I think Hurricane, you know, they were formed in the right time, 83, 84 era, four-piece band, great talent. They had name recognition. You had Sarzo and Cavazzo. Yep. Brothers were in famous bands, so it's not like people had not heard of these people. They went with Enigma slash Capital um, for their first album. They released an EP in 85, Take What You Want, which... There is a video for Hurricane out there, and mm-hmm. it's a great, great song. Take What You Want is another great song. Now, again, it was an EP, six-song EP. So whether that had something to do with it, 85 was kind of a, you know, you, you know, Kiss Asylum was out there, and um, a little bit, it's not quite hit up to the glam level yet. It's, it's coming, but they haven't quite got there. Um, but... I was a fan of that EP, and song for song, it's just all, all six songs. Oh, yeah. That was 85. They took a little bit of time, to be honest with you, because, you know, timing is everything. Oh, yeah. Over the Edge, Over the Edge came out in October of 88, which is pushing 89, but had an absolute great first single, I'm on to you. I mean, it's sing-along. Na 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 lyric. Na 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 na. Everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. That is a great song. I mean, the video was pretty cool. I mean, um, had a great instrumental on it called Baby Snakes, which was which was really cool. I, I'm not a huge fan of Alice Cooper. I'm 18 is a rough cover to try to cover. Yeah, it it's is. Not a rocking song. Yeah. It's just a very difficult song to try to cover. They did release Over the Edge as a second single. Wasn't a whole lot of, to go on there. If I would have been in charge, I would have re-recorded and released It's Only Heaven yes. from the EP yes. as the second single slash ballad. And I think by the time you get to 88, you have a, for lack of better words, good-looking band, solid power ballad. Everybody was releasing power ballads. Mm-hmm. Um I think, you know, there was no follow-up. There was no ballot. And by oh. 88, you had to have one. You, you had, to. had to have a ballot. Do you yep. know how that goes? Yep. We talked a little bit before. I think people are overlooking here Slave to the Trill. You bring in Doug Aldrich, the rest of the band, I believe, stays the same. Yep. I can't recall right off the top of my head. But Slave to the Trill, I love. I think it's by far their best album. It's a huge improvement over Over the Edge song quality. Produced by Michael James Jackson from Creatures of the Night. I think he passed away today. Right? Yeah, R.I.P. Man, right. he did you know, just pass away. Yep. Yeah, Michael James Jackson of all of all the names to come up the day he passes away, man. But um, I hate to see that this morning. The first single I did not like. There's so many better, so many songs I like better on that uh, Slave to the Thrill album. My first single would have been Rain of Love. Yeah. Um, Next to You is a great song. Young Man's great song. Smile Fight the Child. They had a great ballad, Don't Want to Dream. But the first single did not hit, never got to the second single. 
and they were pretty much done. I yeah. mean, it's just, I know Kelly's doing great with Farner. Slave to the Three was underrated to me, and I think the first single, Bombed It, Dance Little Sister, it's kind of a bluesy, funky tune. Yeah. I always went with Rain of Love um, or Next to You, and then I would have followed it up with Ballad. Um, mm-hmm. They had a great ballad on this album. They did not have a ballot on the one before, so they corrected that wrong. And unfortunately, it just didn't happen for them. I saw these guys uh, on a solo club tour, and then I saw them open up for Striper, mm-hmm. which was a great show all the way around. Another band just didn't make it, but I love them still. Yeah, you know, this would be an example where you can't blame the label because look at Striper did so well with uh, To Hell With The Devil, you know what I mean? So so yeah. Striper did well on Enigma. And once again, it's just going to be if people take to you or not. All the label can do is put it out and people got to get into it or they can't. But you made up a, a yeah. lot of good points. I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I, I'm not going to focus on the EP as much because I think that just kind of was out there. But the, the real push the real push for this band was, was on Over The Edge. And they did. They had momentum with I'm On To You, but they couldn't capitalize. Uh, Over The Edge is a great, I do love that song. It is a really great song. But you know, as we all know, you should probably go with your heavy song. You got to go with the formula, A Fish. You got to do the heavy, the ballad, the heavy. You got to kind of like flip flop a little bit and get that ballad. They didn't have a ballad. Uh, Bob Ezrin produced uh, Over the Edge, and that's why I think you get uh, I'm 18 on there because obviously Bob produced a lot of uh, Alice Cooper albums. I actually like it, man. I, I like how it's really um, chilled out and quiet during the verses and stuff. So I think it's a, they do great. You, you kind of touched on it. I mean, these guys all look pretty cool. Uh, especially Kelly Hansen's got the look. He's got the voice. So it's like all the elements are there. Maybe they could have used some Desmond Child magic. You know, if you think back to like what Bon Jovi had, those big songs. I don't know if Hurricane had those same kind of big songs that like people like Bon Jovi had. You know, but you made a great point. Kelly Hansen, in the end, it worked out for him. He ended up in Foreigner. And I forgot to mention, it worked out really good for another guy in Black and Blue, Tommy Thayer. He ended up in Kiss. So, so you know what I mean? Maybe at the end of the day, there's this crazy path you have to take for stardom. You know, Tommy took some detours, and so did Kelly Hansen. Now, one thing, though, and this is going to come up uh, with some other bands that I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, tonight, but, you know, I don't know if these guys um, were sleazy enough. I don't know if they were, like, dirt bags i think as you got to the late 80s you kind of needed to be like a sleazy dirt bag right because if you look you know i went back and i watched youth gone wild down boys um dr feel good i watched all those big 89 um videos and they all kind of came across as sleazy dirt bags you know (laughs) so so a lot of these guys that seemed a little bit more wholesome i don't know man maybe in america that's what people wanted to see is a little bit of sleaze you know what i mean the only thing for me man the where i disagree with you is i don't like uh slave to the thrill i think over i like over the edge better i i I don't know i just i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know if the songs are there i don't like the the bluesy influence i feel like we're just you know, everybody was kind of doing that. Like Striper did it in 90 and they did it. I, I just don't know how original it was. I feel like everybody was kind of knocking on the blues door, Cinderella, Poison. So I don't know, man. That album, it, I love the sound of it. And I think there's a couple cool songs, but I kind of like the other one better. But that's just me. I don't want I don't want to argue with you, man. I like you too much. Hey, man. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all about timing. It's all about timing. Yeah. And, and I think at that point, it, they were dead on arrival. It was all, you know, you know a lot of... We always say 
91 or 92, it was over. A lot of bands were, were would, would come on, especially on the podcast, were saying even late 89 and early 90, it was over for some of them. You know what I mean? So it was changing before we even knew it, but they knew it, you know? Yep. Yeah, it was in motion, as they say. Okay, so talking about people that aren't sleazy dirtbags, I'm going to go... <laughs> I'm going to go to TNT, man, because TNT also always kind of had that. They were just kind of like nice guys. You know what I mean? They weren't scumbags. They When you watch them on talk, when you watch Tony and Ronnie talk, they're just nice guys. And I just don't know. Yeah. In America, people didn't like nice guys. I think they wanted sleazoids, you know. Um, but but I got to say, Tony Harnell, Ronnie Letaker, probably one of the most talented duos uh, in, in this late 80s, you know, hard rock, heavy metal scene. I mean, it's unreal. What he does with his voice, these huge choruses, these queen-like guitar solos. I mean, I love it. But, you know, once again, I don't know if it connected with the masses. Uh, I think they're underrated, uh, for sure. Um, I think they're too talented, man. I think they're too proficient. You know, like we talked, you know, not to keep using L.A. Guns as an example, uh, or even Guns N' Roses. Not a band that I'm a huge fan of, but, but obviously they were huge. Um all those guys were really proficient too, but they kind of played a more raw, simplistic music. Uh, TNT was always way overproduced, like a million guitars, a million voices. So I don't know. And you know another thing? Well, I went back and I watched, like I said, I watched a lot of videos to get ready for this. And I watched 10,000 Lovers in One. And it's that's a great song. Probably should have been huge, yep. but it wasn't. And all the guys are on these blocks kind of by themselves, right? And when you look at bands like them, when I, I keep, I hate to keep using like Skid Row and Warrant, but they they were huge okay. bands. When you watch those bands, those bands interact really tightly. You know what I mean? They they um, you know even Bon Jovi. If you go back to You Give Love a Bad Name, there's a part where John and Richie are like in sync and they're they're crouched down and they're walking across the stage. You know what I mean? Like I don't yeah. get that camaraderie of a band when I watch TNT so much. I mean, and I'm not trying. That's not a diss. I'm just I feel like. Sometimes people feel that connection, and I, I don't know if people feel it with that band. And a lot of the other members were un- interchangeable. They, I mean, it was always Ronnie Latikro and um, Harnell, but there's other guys you didn't, you know, they're kind of in and out. Sometimes when you're a foreign band, I know it's an American singer, but sometimes when you're a foreign band, that it works, and sometimes it doesn't. For the Scorpions, it worked very well. For Europe, it worked very well. Bands like Loudness, it didn't. You know what I mean? So like, I, sometimes when you're not American, I don't know. Uh, it, it works and it doesn't. Here's a question. Are the vocals too high? Because if you go back and you listen to all the big names, like I said, keep kind of throwing them out, but Bon Jovi and Coverdale and all these guys, they sing a little bit more in a lower key. They sing more raspy. I mean, Coverdale sings high, but you know what I'm trying to say. You think of the verses of some of these songs. He he starts off yeah. kind of low and raspy and bluesy. Big problem is they had power ballads. They had about three kick-ass power ballads between Tell No Tales and Intuition. They had Child's Play. Northern Lights and End of the Line. How none of these got released is freaking beyond me. Okay, I I don't know why none of those were released because they're all really good ballads. The thing that kills me is how the song Intuition wasn't a hit. Like to me, 
That's gold, man. That song is so gold and so catchy. It's got that typical 80s riff, you know, in it, and it's so good. But it just didn't connect. And, and they had some up to bats, man. They were on Polygram Records, just like Kiss and Scorpions and uh, Cinderella. Yeah. So they're on a big label. They had videos, just didn't connect. But I think I think if I could go back and make a couple of choices for them, I, I would have did a power ballad video. Um, I would maybe even release something like the song Tell No Tales to show that these guys aren't soft because I think they came across yep. soft in, in, at times and I think we needed to show them more with an edge. Maybe something like Caught Between the Tigers too. That, that's a really cool song. But I don't know, man. I Just like I said, I just don't think they were nasty and sleazy enough. And now here's one thing that I did. And I, actually, okay, once again, I'll chuck in a clip right here. I, I talked to both of these guys on what their thoughts were. And I'll, I'll play it right here. about very positive things, uplifting things. Mm -hmm. And when we think of the Motley Crews and everybody else, they're singing about the most negative, sleazy, you know, crazy shit that you could sing about. So do you think yeah. that hindered popularity in the U.S., your, your subject matter that you guys sang about? Probably, you know, prob probably in some ways. I think, I think lack of good promotion from uh, from the record label and, sure. and and having a really strong manager didn't didn't uh, didn't help us either. So uh, I don't think Tell No Tales was was off the mark that much, even though the songs were pretty positive. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I think it was um, should have done a lot better. And I think had had the label done a few things a little bit differently and released one of the ballads on there. Yeah, um, I think things would be very very different for us. Um, now or, or even soon after that, but uh, it's not it's not stuff I dwell on. That's for sure. You can't, um, you know. But but I I think that that's possibly it. If you look at their 1992 album, and of course in '92 it was over. You know, I mean, there was no shot for TNT yeah. at all. But they. Atlantic Records made them work with outside writers to write more songs about sex and girls and all that kind of stuff. But obviously yeah. that, that should have happened two years ago or three years ago before that. You know what yeah. I mean? And my last point about TNT, for anybody, because I've done this, I've thought to myself, why the hell did Atlantic Records sign TNT in the early 90s? The only thing I could think of was if you listen to the sound of TNT and you listen to like Slaughter and Firehouse – you kind of see some similarities, right? Like with the voice and stuff. And I just yeah. wonder if Atlantic thought, oh, you know, because when you sign somebody, you probably sign them in 90 and then maybe by, you know what I'm trying to say? And then the album might come out in 92. So I, I, that's my only thing. I was thinking about this the other day. It's not really relevant for what we're talking about, but I, I was running through my head because I was listening to this album. Like, why the hell would they have signed them? And then I started to think because, because hair metal was over. But then I was like, well, maybe somebody in their infinite wisdom thought like, oh, maybe we could spin these guys, make them a little sleazier, a little heavier yeah. and sell them like a slaughter type of a thing. But, you know, grunge, it was over. What do you think? TNT, um, I've got uh, four, of really. Um, they're, um, I guess, the three, three, eighty-four, eighty-seven, eighty-nine albums. I've got all those. I like TNT. TNT, and you'll understand what I mean. They always felt clean. They yep. felt real clean. Yep. His vocals were clean. Yep. They looked real clean. Their videos were shiny and pristine. And yep. I, I think at some point, you know, by the time eighty-seven came around, you know, you've got. You've got the Hollywood scene in full effect, um, the, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and um, the Strip. You've got all that in full effect. And these, like you say, these guys are quote-unquote dirtbags. I mean, they look like they were, 
take your sister in a back room. Yeah. I mean, yeah. TNT never got that vibe to me. I thought they were very, very clean. Everything was just polished almost to the point of, of um, you about couldn't look at them. It was so polished. That's yeah. my big complaint with him. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think the the theme of the night, which I never saw coming, is going to be sleazy dirtbags. <laughs> you never know where these things are going to go, man. <laughs> but really, man, if you think of 87, okay, so you said, like you said, the big push for TNT was 87. You know, Tunnel Tales was the big push, I think. You know, they had, all, they had the songs, they had all the goods, and look who comes out, man. Guns N' Roses. As much as I'm not a huge fan, they changed the game. They were real sleazy and nasty. And and look at Motley Crue. I, I, I don't know the timeline, but, you know, even Motley Crue was, you know, they were just wearing lace and pink a couple a year earlier or whatever. Now they're now they're all sleaze with the with the leather and the jeans and all that. You know, so so it's like people yep. were changing the look and TNT was kinda like you said, they were white and they were coming across almost like Angel or something. You're coming across like Angel kinda, you know, and it just you couldn't come across that way. You kinda had to be a little gnarly at that point. So all right man, who's yeah, they were I get it, I understand. Who's your final band? I already know who it is. Just tell it's one of your favorites that you love to talk about. So this should be fun. There'll be no surprise here. Um, and I think I know your final band. Yeah. There'll be no surprise with, with my band, um, yep. Badlands. Yep. Just I get it. They were not uh, a boy band. They no. were not Poison. They didn't have, you know, the best videos. They didn't have ballads. No. What they did have was a four guys that got together and just absolutely killed it on a debut album. I mean, there is not a track to be found that is not a perfect ten on that first album. It's just an incredible debut, and I have pushed for these guys. I know you gave me some crap last time about how much I pulled. 1994, Motley Crue, <laughs> Robbie into the conversation, but this was this just as bad. Right up there too. This is right up there with uh, with uh, Motley in '94 because I just absolutely love this band. Have always loved them and always will. And like I said, I know '89, a little bit late in the game. Um, they were not pretty boys. They didn't have the ballads, but they had everything you would need to be a rock band mm-hmm. and to be a successful rock band and it how they did not blow open is just incredible yeah yeah man it, you know this I, I think my thoughts that I've got on this one is that Badlands didn't belong in the 80s and, and I think that's the biggest problem there's no problem with this band this band is excellent Gillen Jakey Lee uh, Eric Singer Greg Chason I mean these guys are all excellent musicians they, I think they just came out in the wrong era. I think they either should have came out in the 70s, or oddly enough, I think they might have even worked in the 90s if they could have changed up their, you know, their, their you know, obviously Ray didn't die, and, and maybe they changed their, their style a little bit. I just don't think they fit in the 80s. They were a jam band, like a riff-oriented band. And um, they, you're right, they didn't do this cheesy cherry pies and the power ballads. And that was not in their wheelhouse, you know. And the talent's there. You can't say, like, this guy's, you know, not a good singer. You know, maybe they could have spun it like the White Snake way. And, and maybe, you know, because Coverdale and Gillen, there's a lot of similarities between the way they sing, you know. But um, yeah. they just played by their own rules. And, you know, let's play a clip of, um, of Greg kind of talking about 
saying how they did play. You know, we were so uh, against the green with Atlantic that whatever they wanted to do, we didn't really give a damn what they wanted to do. And we just kind of did what we wanted to do. We, we kind of, as the saying goes, you live by the sword, you die by it. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I, and on one hand, I wish it would come out, but on the other hand, I can, I can live with whatever the situation is. I just think that we pissed off Atlantic to a level that, you know, if it came out and sold some units, I don't think it makes enough money for them to, uh, be worth it, and I think it's more of them being able to put a dig into us by never putting it out. And Jason Flom, who was the uh, our A and I A and R guy at Atlantic, uh, is now the head of Atlantic. Oh, okay. And he's a, and he's about my age, maybe even younger. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think that. Uh, and we did not have a good relationship with him. He he hated us. We didn't think much more of him. Um, you know, the whole thing with that, we were on Atlantic, but we were on Titanium as well, which was what kind of like a custom label for Atlantic. And they all took kind of like bets on how many records they thought we would sell between our, our two managers, Paul O'Neill and John Goldwater and Andy Sesher, who owned Hit Crater and Jason Flom. And they all had these double and triple platinum numbers in their head that they thought we would sell. And when we didn't do that, I think they kind of blamed it on us for not towing the line the way that they would have wanted us to do. Uh, there were a lot of times we wouldn't do interviews that were scheduled just because we didn't schedule them. They were kind of scheduled for us. So we really bucked the trend and we really didn't go along with the, uh, the machinery that they had into place. So like I said, you live by the sword, you die by it. But, um, you know, I think part of it, too, is, is they just were kind of too rebellious. You know, they, as, uh, as Greg has stated, they, they rebelled uh, at their label. They were, they were a pain in the ass to their label. They had problems with their management. You know, they just didn't fit in to the whole mold that they were supposed to. There's a book, and I, and I pulled it out so I would have it referenced right here. Um, Martin Popoff. And this book was came out in the 90s, but it's called The Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal. Mm-hmm. And he goes through hundreds and hundreds of pages of album reviews. Some, some of them are just hilarious. People need to uh, find the Def Leppard Hysteria and, uh, and read that one, his review of that, <laughs> which uh, he absolutely despises. But part of his review in this book for Badlands and I'm paraphrasing, I'm pulling a couple quotes out here. It says, Badlands, uh, let's see, you have a potent blues metal force, one of my mm-hmm. favorite bands ever, mm-hmm. an act of metallic honesty I just can't rave enough about. And it, you know, he goes on to say, about as trustworthy a 10 I can think of. They are the consummate metal truth. And it, He's 100%. He gives ratings from 0 to 10, and this was a 10. Now, he did follow up Blue Highway. He also gave that a 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this quote was kind of appropriate, what we were talking about all night here. It said, out of all the disappointing commercial situations to befell rockers over the years, Badlands' lack of recognition depresses me the most. Theirs was a band so sincere and so capable with the intense realms of their chosen language, I can't believe the critical community didn't send the necessary word to host to hoist the poor sails 
examples to my mind. Yeah. Both of those are 100% correct. That that absolutely kicks it, knocks it out of the park. Um, both albums are just, they just destroy most of the albums that came out in that time. Yeah. But, you know, there was a certain look and a certain formula that worked. They did not abide by that. Right. And they eventually got kicked to the curb. But, man, did they give us something to remember. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the only thing I want to say is, you know, they did, They, I believe the label didn't really hear a single, and I think they went back and they wrote um, Dreams in the Dark just to try to appease the label to have some kind of a, you know, video single that they could do. And that's a really cool song, but once again, you know, it's just, that's that's maybe not representative of what they really are about and just they just didn't fit into the era they were they were from another time and you know we'll always have that music to check out and my last thought i just have to say i firmly believe once again another one of these unrelated metal thoughts that i've been having lately i firmly believe if ray gillen would have lived he would have been the singer of sabotage on the album edge of thorns mic drop (laughs) but uh that's that's just a that's just a theory i have the man the man could i mean individually Badlands is probably more talented than any band in the 80s, individually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, yep. and it came together as a band. It just didn't happen commercially, and that's why we're here today to talk about situations like this. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to rip on the American public and say that they're idiots, but, you know, obviously Badlands is a different caliber of musicians than Poison, than, than Bon Jovi, but at the end of the day... You know, if we're talking about commercial success, it, it had nothing to do with, you know, uber talent. It had to do with, you know, the right look, the right songs. And and I think that's why, you know, Poison was so big and Bon Jovi got so big. And the whole lot of them is that they, they had the cool videos. They had the cool look. They had the right songs. And, you know, and I forgot to mention this, too. Maybe a lot of these bands... Maybe they needed a, an outside writer for a song or two. Maybe TNT needed Desmond Child for a song or bad. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's would have done it because when you look at like Slippery When Wet, I don't think all the songs are co-written by Desmond Child. I think it's just a few of those key songs that were the singles. You know what I mean? So so maybe some of these bands could have used some Desmond Child magic back in the eighties. Whatever it was, man. I, th- that is my. I, I'm in, I'm just at a loss for words, man. Badlands, it's just. They're one of my favorites. You've known it. I've talked about it forever on Twitter, online, whenever I can push them in there. But, yeah, they are my number one as far as uh, bands that did not make it big that just absolutely should have. And that leads to one of your (laughs) bands, I'm sure, that you feel the same way about. Yeah, you know, there's one band that, for like, you're always going off on on Motley 94 and Bandlands. I'm always going off about Lillian Axe, and I always feel that Lillian Axe got totally screwed, and I totally, it's all the label's fault, and I'm going to explain it all right now. It has nothing to do with the band. The band did nothing wrong. It's it's MCA, Music Cemetery of America. Um, So, 88. This band comes out in 1988 on MCA. They give them one measly single. They give them Dream of a Lifetime. Not the best song on the album by any stretch of the imagination. The video is cheesier than hell. You know, some girls popping around her house just getting dressed or whatever or undressed. I don't know what she's doing. But they're up in the clouds in the sky. The only thing there I'd say is their look isn't very defined yet. I don't think they've got 
the right look yet. I don't know, something about it's just just not working. They don't look like a professional band uh, to me when I go back and I watch that. Next thing, they got screwed. So you could blame this on their management. They never got a, a big slot opening on a big tour. They never got the chance to open for Motley Crue or Kiss or any of these bands. So they got totally screwed on that kind of stuff. Ron Taylor, one of the coolest voice in this scene, in my opinion. Cool, interesting, distinct voice. And Stevie Blaze, incredible guitar player, incredible songwriter. The biggest fail on this album was not releasing Nobody Knows. Um, as the single. This is, to me, I think one of the coolest ballads. It's not cheesy and corny like a lot of the ballads that came out in the 80s. This is a pretty pretty heartfelt song, I think. At least the way it's sung, it, it's sung with a lot of emotion. And when I talked with Steve about it, he, he had said that there was like a big rush to do another album. And then a couple other bands told me this too, is that I think it was, I think Ted Poley told me this from Danger Danger. It was like they were almost ready right after um, Bang Bang to do the power ballad. And then they just got rushed away to do another album. And I want to say Stevie Blaze said the same kind of thing. Um, and this would probably be a great time to throw in a clip of him talking about MCA Records. The biggest issue we had was that we had a label in MCA that gave us a whole lot of rhetoric and uh, and didn't really pull through on what they were supposed to do for the band. So uh, that was, you know, pretty much what went down in the first record. We went on tour with Crocus uh, for several months and, uh, and played a lot. We did a lot of shows. But we never, you know, MCA should have gotten us on a bigger, better tours. They never did, and uh, we didn't really have very good management in Marshall because he, you know, he dropped the ball on us. He pretty much uh, came in and did very little. I think it was almost like he did it so we could make some money to get out. And uh, next thing you know, MCA wants us to go do a second album when we should have been, you know, staying on and pushing hard on the first record. Uh, if it was me. I would have released Misery Loves Company as the first song. I know it's heavier, but it's super cool yeah. and it's edgy and it's catchy. Then go with Nobody Knows as the uh, ballad and I, that would have guaranteed been a hit. And then I, I like laughing in your face. I think that's a nice way. It's like a cool, it has that fun summer song, you know, vibes. Really, make sure you put that out in the summertime. When we get to Love and War, uh, Love and War is a, is, is a tough one. It's a complicated album because, you know, they're really starting to stray away from this typical sound of what an 80s hair band does. You know, there's some really, I don't even know what it is. It, it's not really definable. Some of it's like, you look at like... Um, World Stop Turning On Me. It's got like Spanish guitar. They, they were doing some weird stuff. But Show A Little Love, I thought was a great first single. They, the look is there. I think everything's there. The only problem was is that we're, we're talking about MCA Records. They give them one shot. They give them one video. So once again, they had a little bit of a minor, minor, you know, the most minor hit you could possibly have was Show A Little Love. And then there was nothing to follow it up with. And I don't think... Um, Love and War has a lot of standout, like, there's no real, like, 
lovey power ballad song on that, that album. Um, I do think yeah. All's Fair in Love and War is one of their coolest songs, so they probably should have put that one out. My Number, the girl cover, that's got that sleazy dirtbag peppering that we were always talking about, you know? Uh, so I think that might have done okay. But, um, you know, I think they did everything right. And then if, I'm not even going to talk about the other two albums because they came out in 92 and 93, and it was completely dead, over. They weren't even, they were on even a lesser uh, label, which was Grand Slam. So it, it was definitely commercially over after Love and War, but it's a head scratcher, man. They, they should have been cool. Big, and you know what I'm going to say too? Is the name, I don't care. I think it's cool. It's a cool name. Some of those names, like you yeah. question, like is Keel, is that any good? I don't know. Lillian Axeman in the glam era, like Lillian, girl, you know, androgynous, and then you got your axe, like metal. Like if the, I think that's one of the coolest names. So it's I, bl- I put all the blame on MCA, man. Love the X. What do you think? Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. I, and I keep thinking, I mentioned this earlier, but give Black and Blue or give Lillian X the opening. Because Poison, Cinderella, they didn't need opening bands to sell uh, tickets. Some uh-uh. bands do. But in 88, Long Cold Winter and Open Up and Say Ah, neither of those bands needed one, I think Warren opened up for Poison and yep. some other. I can't remember Cinderella. I can't remember who opened up for them. And Winger, so. Winger, and Bullet Boys. Okay, okay. You know, think of if Billion Axe or Black and Blue get the opening slot for Open Up or Long Fall Winter Tour. Yep, yep. That probably changes the dynamics of both bands from from that point forward, and it could very well have happened. But it just didn't. And, you know, I think Poison and Cinderella fans would have given both of those bands a shot. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it was just the time. It was, I mean, both bands kind of had the look and, you know, they had the songs, really. Um, you know, an opening on a major tour would, I think, have made all the difference for either one of those two bands. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, wow, we, we got through this one. Um, I think people will probably agree uh, with a lot of what we said. I'm sure there's people out there that will have their own uh, opinions on bands that should have been bigger, and I encourage them to you know interact with us on social media about you know their, their list you know because that's always fun and, and there might be some bands that they'll throw out there and be like, yeah, 100 percent should have been bigger. I mean I can think of handfuls of bands that I also believe this should have been bigger. Like somebody like uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, for example. But once again, you know, you, with a lot of these bands, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd would be a perfect example of timing. You know, I, I think if they were to come out a yep. few years earlier, you know, that, that glammy, heavy glam look would have probably worked. But in 89, everybody was starting to scale back the look. So, you know, it, who knows? Yep. It, was, it, was very, it, it was a very shallow time. You know what I mean? Uh, it was very shallow. The, the more shallow a song was and the more goofy it was, that tended to be the hit. The deeper that it was, the more intricate that it was, it probably wasn't going to be a hit. So it was a weird, it was a great time, but it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And you know what? Here's the biggest thing to take away from this. There was a lot of competition and it was easy to get left in the dust because you had so many big heavy hitters and you had guys from the past trying to regain their old glory like Aerosmith and Judas Priest and Kiss. So it, there was a lot and, and, you know, when, when you're oversaturated, it's easy to get lost. Yeah, you know, Ozzy, Ozzy was another big one that yep. came back during yep. that time. Sure. Priest was another one that came back kind of roaring during that time. Yep. Um, but you're right. It, competition, man, it's not for the weak. And that era, as many 
bands that were signed. And again, I think every label wanted the next GNR and yeah. the next Poison. And I think they gave a lot of bands a shot. But I think they gave them one shot, one video, and that was it. Yep. And they moved on. Yep. If it did not break big, they, they moved on and uh, went, went looking down Sunset Boulevard for somebody else. But you're right. From 80, I'd say, 6, 86 to 90, those five-year span, what a glorious time it was. Yep, 100%. All right, my friend. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, man. We'll, talk. we'll see you down the road, brother. Yeah, have a good night. Well, that was great talking about those six metal bands that should have been bigger. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Rock on!